0: Suzanne Lyle was a 19-year-old student at the University of New York at Albany. She was a computer major, but also a passionate poet who loved sharing her writing with others. On the night of March 2, 1998, she got off the bus at the Collins Circle stop on university property and headed toward her dorm. She was never seen again. I'm Ed and this is Unfound. many of you know what a transitional space is. It's the area between your car and that Starbucks location. It is the area between your apartment and a subway car. It is the area between your office building and your car. It is the area that you have to walk leaving your apartment if you want to walk down the street to the grocery store. It is a place where you are outside, you're generally alone, you're focused on getting to wherever you're going, and generally you're also not paying attention to your surroundings. I bring this up because you start thinking about it, and you say to yourself, well, there, if that's the case, then there are a lot of transitional spaces in my life. And I'm here to tell you that those transitional spaces in your life are the places where you are most likely to be abducted, to be murdered, to be kidnapped, and to disappear, just like in this case of Suzanne Lyle. She was in a transitional space going from the bus to her dorm. But the reason those areas are so dangerous is because it's harder for a criminal to break into somebody's house, to assault a woman. This usually happens in these cases. Rarely are men sexually assaulted, let's say. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But you're behind a locked door, or if in your car, you're behind a locked door of your car. If you're at your work, you're with other people. If you're in the grocery store, you're with other people. But when you leave that place, you are on your own again. And you will see how, if you do a search on YouTube, you'll see many self-defense experts talk about these spaces and how these are the places in your life Where you must be most aware. Now this is particularly relevant in the 21st century when we have people who can't take their faces out of their phones. I can't tell you that how many times I see young men, young women, older men, older women walking down the street, walking from their car into Starbucks, not paying attention to their surroundings. And we know all sorts of stories about people doing this and almost walking in front of a train. And there are stories of people getting hit by trains, by cars, because they're not paying attention to their surroundings. It's a particular particular circumstance because of how technology has changed. But there's another aspect to this, and I think that it's very relevant in – Suzanne Lyle's case, and of course at her time, iPhones and Android phones did not exist, cell phones did, but nobody spent their time looking at the face of an old flip phone. That if you are in one of those transitional spaces, these are also the places where people who know you, you'll most likely run into them as well, whether on purpose or by accident, And I would tell all of you, especially women, but it can happen to men too, if you happen to run into somebody you don't expect in one of these transitional spaces, let's say it's an ex-boyfriend, an ex-husband, an ex-lover, or if it's, let's say, your husband's ex-wife or your boyfriend's ex-girlfriend or your girlfriend's ex-boyfriend, if you're a guy, or this, of course, can go with uh, homosexual relationships as well, that you should be on alert. I know I think about that in my life because of things that I do, and granted, doing a show like this, where you're talking about people who have disappeared, in a high percentage of these stories, of these cases, uh, some sort of crime is involved. The majority, it's safe to say that a majority of Uh, the people who disappear are gone because of a crime. That you never know when one of these people who made a person disappear is going to hear your show and get a little nervous and maybe try to track you down or stalk you, something like, like that. And that should be something that all of us who do shows like this should remember, of course, for me personally, I do other things that might put me in the crosshairs of people who have no problems committing crimes. And so I know with me in my transitional spaces, and I think I've gotten better at this as I've gotten older, and I'm an only child, so um, I keep this in mind being that I don't want my parents to lose their only child – I think losing parents if you're a child is the way of the world. But when parents lose children, it never quite seems right, does it? And those parents never quite recover. And uh, I'm going to be doing an interview uh, that you're going to hear with Mary Lau, Suzanne Lau's uh, mother here very shortly on this show. But parents never recover. And I try to keep that in mind. As I go about my business. In fact, I can tell you that thinking about this, I've become a gun owner this year, and I've started looking over my shoulder quite a bit more than I used to. This all comes to mind when I hear about this story of how Suzanne Lyle disappeared. That she was in a transitional space, and obviously, Someone took advantage of that. So let's go to the facts of the case. And then you will get to hear my interview with Mary Lau. And then you also begin to understand why I call this episode Suzanne Lau, a young woman in transition. Not just because she was walking from one place to another, but she was at a particular point in her life where she was changing from one situation to another that – ...could have caused her disappearance. On the day she disappeared, Suzanne worked at Babbage's Software in the Cross Gates Mall in Albany. She left work around 9.20 p.m. and boarded a public bus that would take her back to the Albany campus of the University of New York. The bus reached campus at about 9.40 p.m. It was about a 20-minute trip. At that stop, Suzanne exited and had about a five-minute walk to her dorm... Between the bus and the dorm, she disappeared. Interestingly, about two months later, her Babbage software name tag was discovered in the school parking lot near the bus stop. It appeared as though it had been out in the elements for the entire time, although the police could never make an exact determination. In addition, the day after Suzanne disappeared, her ATM card was used at a local convenience store to extract $20 from a cash machine. However, the store's camera was not in a position to see who used the card. At the time of her disappearance, Suzanne was in a multi-year relationship with Richard Condon. They came together through a common interest in computers. Their favorite film was the 1995 movie Hackers, with Angelina Jolie as a supporting character. During the investigation, Richard was found to have an alibi at the time of Suzanne's disappearance. He was playing video games online with a friend of his. When Suzanne disappeared, she was wearing an ankle-length trench coat, black shirt, and jeans. She was also carrying a black backpack. Despite a few leads, no person has ever been connected to Suzanne's disappearance. In a few moments, you'll hear an interview I recorded with Suzanne's mother, Mary, in late August. You will find Mrs. Lau to be very upfront about what she believed happened to her daughter. We also talk about what she has done to make sure Suzanne isn't forgotten and to make sure this never happens to another person again. I should also say that this case was covered by the TV show Disappeared five years ago. And if you've seen that episode, you will notice after this interview with Mary how shows like that don't give you all the information. Suzanne Lau, a young woman in transition, I give you an interview with her mother, Mary Lau. And on the phone now, I have Mrs. Mary Lau, the mother of Suzanne. Uh, welcome to the show, Mary.
1: Thank you. Yes. Yeah.
0: Let's ta- start with you just talking a little bit about Suzanne, what was going on in her life at the time, um, maybe a little bit about her upbringing, her education, her interests.
1: Okay. Um, well, Suzy Susie, uh, Susie was born in April of 19... 19- 90, uh, 1978. And, uh, you know, right from the beginning, we kind of knew she was, she had a lot, you know, of intelligence. My husband always said there was, you know, he could see that in her. And as she, uh, you know, grew up, uh, by the time she was about nine years old, she was writing poetry. And mm-hmm. um, from writing poetry to uh, wanting to, you know, she started to hear about uh, computers, and uh, I think our first computer was a Texas Instrument computer, mm-hmm. and she really was fascinated with those. And uh, she, uh, you know, really got into the computer area, and uh, you know, eventually, you know, would take computers apart mm-hmm. and rebuild them. Yes, <laughs> and. And uh, how old would know, she have
0: been at this time, a teenager? Oh,
1: so, she, she, Yeah, she was a young teenager, maybe 13, 14 that's, years that's, old. That's, she was the only kid in school who actually knew anything about computers. Uh, at the time in school, they were just getting one into the, to the library. It's a fairly big school district, but, mm-hmm. you know, the libraries in the different schools had one computer Mm -hmm. and if it would break down nobody knew anything about computers and they would call Susie to come and see if she could fix it which Mm -hmm. she usually could Mm -hmm. and um you know she really uh she had people around her all the time just fascinated by the fact that she typed so fast and she could uh you know bring up all sorts of information on the computer where did you
0: where do you think that she got this from I I, 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 am, I no. have
1: absolutely no idea. <laughs> no idea. It just, it just seemed to come, and, and like I said, she was, you know, she was into writing poetry, so she was using a, a typewriter, and you know, and then of course when a computer came uh, around, she could you know type all that information out on the um, on the computer, mm-hmm. and you know, save all her poetry that way.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: she really, you know, she really uh, had a lot going for her. Uh, when she was in high school, she was on the honor society.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, she she was a very bright girl, and um,
0: yeah. you know, you know, it's you, you know, it's it's uh, interesting to me that she she seems like she has this what would be a, a, I don't know if the word or does a dichotomy of on one hand being very technical, but on yeah. the other hand being very uh, well I would maybe if I could say this artsy fartsy in poetry because I I could say that because I'm artsy fartsy but really having a passion for the arts, but having a passion for computers as well, which is a really unique combination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Th-
1: that's oh. that's the, basically uh, what she was. And uh, mm-hmm. and we could never understand, even as a real young child, some of the poetry that she would come up with that was, you know, just so far beyond her, you know, years. I mm. mean, you know, comparing things like mm-hmm. – uh, uh, you know, r- when it rained one day, and she wrote a poem about rain and how the rain sounded like thundering hoofs of a, a horse, mm-hmm. you know, coming down the driveway. Right. You know, just just really, you know, far out uh, ideas of how she put this all together. We just don't know where it came from. Um, one interesting thing was uh, one day she was taking a shower, mm-hmm. and uh, she jumped out of the shower. She hit soap in her hair, towel wrapped around her, and she ran down the hall and they said, where are you going? And she said, she just got the idea for a poem and she had to write it down before she forgot it. So, you know, even doing wow. that would be, you know, poems were just coming into her head all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she even she even wrote poems about the places that she would write a poem. Uh, one time, writing a poem on a on the back of a, I think she had some bunion pads or something. It was the only paper she had. Mm -hmm. So she wrote a poem on the back of that. You know, just things like that that she could, you know, really Mm. came to her. She had to write it down. Backs of napkins. I mean, Mm. it was just, you know, it was constantly coming into her. And uh, after she disappeared, my husband and I went through her her books, which were tons of paper, and I couldn't believe all the poems that she wrote. I just can't, I could not believe it. She,
0: she was a young woman who was very in touch with her feelings and could express them, you know, not just oh, in, yeah. not just speaking, but writing them down, which is a particularly unique talent.
1: Yes, yeah, that's where she was coming from, and uh, we don't know where she got it from, but it just seemed to to happen. And...
0: Mm-hmm. Well, having a wide, diverse array of interests like that is usually uh, a sign of uh, good parenting, too. You you should know, so you should be uh, commended for that. But I'm sure you're happy, though, that she went, chose to go into computers for school instead of poetry, right?
1: Well, yeah, I (laughs) always, I always wondered, you know, uh, if a poet could make it in this world. Mm -hmm. I know uh, at 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 uh, there was a time when the school would publish, you know, art type things. That children had done, um, or yeah, actually, i calling them children, but mm. high school students yeah. would do art-type work. And um, in order to, some of the stuff that she wrote, she said in order to get it published in this booklet, which was a once-a-year booklet, was kind of on the dark side. Mm. For some reason, that's what kids like to read. Yeah. So, you know, some of her poetry at that point was very Mm dark-sounding. And when I spoke to people who worked at the school, they said they would get booklets from all the different schools. And and most of the booklets were very dark, you know. Mm. That's what kids
0: were like. Teenagers. Yeah, teenagers. Yeah, teenagers. Uh, So she goes to school, but she, she ends up going to one school, but... And what was that school again? She, then she transferred.
1: Oh, she went to um, SUNY Oneonta, okay. which is uh, about 100 miles from where we live,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, kind of, uh, you know, down in uh, kind of mid-New York. Um, and when she went there, she, uh, she took a computer science class. And uh, by the end of the year, she said that it was, you know, really she could teach the, the, uh, the teachers. Yeah. They didn't have the knowledge that she had at that point about computers, so she decided that she would transfer to a bigger school, and that's when she came up to SUNY Albany, which you know, oh, well, maybe thirty-five, forty miles from here. Right. So she moved a little closer. I I was kind of against it. I really didn't want her to move closer, but the but the um, the classes that she could take at that mm-hmm. school were you know, a little more challenging. I think that's what she was looking for. Was that, something that,
0: that's interesting. You didn't want her to move back closer to where you lived? That's that's well, interesting. Well, I,
1: I really felt like in, in, I had two other children who, you know, both of them went away, you know, to, a, to school, one five hours away, one mm-hmm. two-and-a-half hours, almost three hours away. I just really felt like they're, you know, they're um, – ability to grow a little bit Mm -hmm. was to be able to be further away from home with her being so close to home it was not that I didn't want her yeah yeah. (laughs) that's that's not the point but with her being so close to home I just felt like she wasn't going to experience the um you know learning Mm -hmm. how to live out out on the world on your own a little bit Mm
0: -hmm.
1: a little bit better
0: yeah, see, my mom to this day is still the opposite. If I could have gone to college in my bedroom at home in 1989, <laughs> she would have. So yeah. once again, so I, I so that was that's why I had to ask you about that. Um, how did she feel? I, I, you know, she'd just be a few younger than me. I, I was born in 1970. She would be a few years. Like what year was she born again? 70. 78. 78. So she, okay, so she was born the same year as my nephew. Okay. So I know even at the time, even the, you know, early 90s, mid-90s, computers for women was was still kind of in its infancy. How did she feel about, you know, having these classes and having an interest with, with, in something that was so male-dominated?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think she just felt very good about knowing what she knew, and um, mm-hmm. she was very helpful to anybody who asked her if, if uh, they could, you know, um if if she could help them you know mm-hmm. uh, with their with their problems and and many times you know after a class somebody would come up to her and say you know geez, i'm having trouble with a certain thing and you help me out so i think she felt good about that i really um i know she did mm-hmm. um you know that she was able to uh, you know help other people who you know with her knowledge
0: yeah because you know the way I remembered. I think that women going into engineering and computers and math is is much more common now. But I think at the time, it, a lot of women stayed away from this stuff. They might have had the interest, but they didn't because it was such a ma- male domin you know male dominated industry. So I think that also that once again says something that you know very unique about her. How did she do it, Albany? You know, switching. You know. To a tougher school. How um, is she doing?
1: I don't think she. You know, the thing is, I think with with uh, being in a being in college, when you go to a, a college, you make friends. You know, in your uh, freshman mm-hmm. year, and you kind of stay with those friends throughout the whole schooling. When she switched, she had a little more trouble, you know, making uh, close acquaintances because mm-hmm. you don't have that orientation that you would have when you start out as a freshman. Hmm. Um, you know, she was already a sophomore, so uh, she didn't really have a lot of close friends. She had friends, but, you know, nobody she could say, you know, this is my closest friend. I met her, you know, last year. Um, mm-hmm. So I think she had a little more trouble when she came up. I, I'm wondering if, if she, you know, made a mistake, um, you know, coming hmm. closer. Of course, mm. We know it wasn't yeah, a yeah, yeah. but baby, um, but you know, uh, just the fact that she, um, you know, uh, mm. needed Wait. some. I mean, she was.
0: Uh, let's just put it this way: she was getting passing grades and all the. Oh
1: yeah, okay. she was. Yeah, no, she didn't have that problem. Mm-hmm. The problem was, you know, um, uh, basically, uh, you know, the fact that it was harder for her to to fit into groups
0: the social life the socializing social yeah. socializing that that goes along with college okay yep. sure well that, I guess that brings us to um, the the man that she eventually did meet and through a computer club you know, explain to the listeners how that happened with rich well, meeting she, Richard she Richard she Condon.
1: Actually, Yeah she actually met him uh, before she went to college. uh, She was she was about eleventh grade and um, heard about this computer uh, computer uh, group that would meet once a week at a local restaurant and Hmm. uh, convinced my husband to take her to this place and uh, so my husband would take her down there, um, you know, once a week to meet with these people and Hmm. uh, some of them were older. Um, That was. Something that bothered me a lot was, mm. you know, and there were quite a few, you know, male
0: right. people, of course. Um, you know, yeah.
1: more. And so uh, actually just recently uh, became acquainted with somebody I didn't, uh, but I found out about somebody who who was the person who actually introduced Suzanne to her Her uh, boyfriend, Mm -hmm. the the one she finally wound up with, and the reason that he did was because Susie was interested in learning um, learning how to uh, do some uh, uh, networking here, Um, learning how to do computer uh, programming.
0: Okay, in like a particular computer language or something like that.
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. and she did not know how to do that, and she had heard that this guy. Um who eventually became her boyfriend
2: mm-hmm. was
1: a, an expert at programming and so he was he introduced her to to uh, this guy's name is Rich mm-hmm. introduced him to Rich and um, that's how they got acquainted was because he taught Susie some computer programming and um, she she used uh, um, we all use Microsoft Word. everybody uses
2: Microsoft mm-hmm. Word,
1: but she and Rich got into um, using Linux, right. which is, yeah, a lot a lot more difficult of program. Right. So that's how they, they, uh, you know, really got to know each other. And, you know, he, he thought, wow, you know, <laughs> he, he was pretty uh, pretty in tune with computers. And to meet up with a, a girl that, you know, knew so much about computers was kind of, right. wow. So
0: know. that was the level on which they identified with each other. That's where they really bonded, I guess you could say. Was was yeah. with the computers? How long was it? Now he was how many years older than she was?
1: Uh, about a year and a half. Now. Okay, yeah, he so was, uh, one grade ahead of her. He when she was in eleventh, he was in twelfth. So.
0: And he was and he was organizing this at this restaurant at, the, at that early age. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because okay. Um,
1: he he was another guy who was building computers and you mm. know tearing them apart and you know making bigger and better computers at the time when they weren't. I mean, our cell phones now have more more memory than those computers did. But yes. you know, that many years ago 18, 19, 20 years ago,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we're we're talking about you know uh, top of the line computers that they were putting together.
0: So, how much longer after that did they become a couple? Was it while she when she went to college when she went to Albany? Because he ended up now, going to the same school.
1: Is yeah. No, where? he actually never did go to the same school as she oh, did. Okay. Um yeah, he um he went to a uh, Catholic boys' school in the area and uh, she of course went to a local high school up here in Balsam Spa where we're from. Mm-hmm. But um he um, when he went off to college he went to RPI, which Rensselaer polytechnical institute mm-hmm. and Susie was still in high school. Um and then the following year, she went to uh, Oniana, which, like I said, is about 100 miles
2: from right. here. Right.
1: So, um, so they never went to the same schools together. They just got to know each other, I think, through that, you know, that meeting, those meetings in the restaurant. And then once, you know, they had those meetings, that's how they. Uh, you know, that's
0: how they started together. dating.
1: That's how they started dating
0: and at the at the time that Suzanne disappeared, how long had they been a couple and I know there's some we'll get into the particulars of that, but how long had they been been a couple? I
1: think they'd been together uh, about two and a half years, maybe because okay. she started dating him sometime um, as a junior in high school, mm-hmm. and then she disappeared as a freshman in uh, or a sophomore in college, so Okay. About, you know, uh, two and a half years or so.
0: Okay. We're going to come back to her boyfriend in a moment. But before you came on the air, I went through the facts of her disappearance and what she did that day and some of the times and, and things like that. Um, I just want to clear up a couple things because here we are in 2016, and there. I just want to get straight a couple facts. First of all, I'm sure you know if people are familiar with their daughter's case, they've heard about – the man in the baseball hat that appears at that convenience store at, around the time that her ATM card was used the next day. What can you tell him That guy has been exonerated, hasn't he?
1: Yes, he has. Okay. Uh, and it took a long time before the police actually located him. But okay. they finally did and um, pretty much decided. I mean, that's what they told me is that, mm. you know, anything that they found out from him um, – you know, put, didn't put him in that place or didn't put him taking taking Suzanne.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, that's really all I can tell you about that. Right. I, I don't know any more than what the police told me.
0: Right. Well, I uh, yeah, and I just want my listeners to get it straight from your mouth because, like I said, there <clears throat> there are still sites out there that maybe haven't been updated in a while or they don't yeah. know some of the news that, you know, that can kind of put people – off in, in maybe the wrong direction and of course if somebody if the police say that somebody's not being looked at anymore then we want to make sure that we put that out there uh, the other point is about her her name tag from her job uh, that she was at that night it wasn't seen a, near that bus stop that where she got off for about two months later? Like it was she disappeared in March? Uh,
1: I was yeah, it was it was uh, like early I would say late April, early May.
0: Okay. That and they found
1: that.
0: okay. And was that name tag where it was found, would that have been on the way from the bus to her to her um, dormitory or would it have been in the opposite direction?
1: No, it was found um, pretty much right where the the bus left off the the, uh, passengers that night. Um, It it actually, uh, that was a very mild winter. We did Mm -hmm. not have very much snow that winter, and any time we had any precipitation, it was always um, kind of freezing rain. Mm -hmm. But right after, and there was no snow on the ground when Susie disappeared. It was
2: Mm.
1: very clear, just, you know. Um, whatever. But that week, after she disappeared, there was a small snowstorm. And I would say maybe four or five inches, not much. Um, And when the college um, plowed that parking lot, Mm -hmm. uh, it, it had salt and sand or whatever on the parking lot. And they pushed that up over the curb, there was like a curb where the you know where yeah. the bus left the passengers off. Yes. And when they pushed the uh, the salt and sand or whatever up to the top, it went up over the top of the curb, and it was there that that badge was found. Now, from what I uh, I gathered from the police, they mm-hmm. said that. Right after she disappeared, of course, they didn't go out to look for about three or four days, So, but they said right after she disappeared, um, they walked that parking lot pretty much shoulder to shoulder and did not find anything. All right, mm. that that's, this is where the confusion comes yeah. in. They found, they found nothing. Now, I'm saying that where this badge was found mm-hmm. was up on top of this pile of sand and uh, you know, uh, fault or whatever it was. Yeah. And it wasn't until, like I said, almost, you know, a month and a half to two months mm-hmm. after she disappeared where they found it. And um, could could somebody have come by and dropped it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the other thing about this was this particular badge was one, according to the place where she worked, they were not using anymore. They were using a hang tag where you, you know, put it around your neck on a, right. a you know, a lariat, a lariat,
2: lariat type yes. thing. Mm-hmm.
1: And they had the badge on that. Um, this one was a pin badge. And um, from what, what you know, what we found, the police showed us the back of the badge, um, the pin was very rusty. Well, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. you could put something out you know, in a day and yeah. have it rust you right. know, pretty especially quickly. Right, especially cheap metal
0: like that, sure. Yeah, cheap sure.
1: metal, you know. So they were saying, well, it was here for a long while. Well, we, we can't decide that it was. It was cracked. Hmm. I would say that, you know, maybe a car drove over it or something, so it was cracked. But other than that, there wasn't really much else we could find out about that badge other than it was found by two students. Who were walking through the parking lot and they found it. And they first picked it up, thought it was a credit card because the Mm. size of a credit card. Yeah. And threw it down. And then uh, the one girl picked it up and said, Oh, there's a girl that's missing. Let's look at this. And they looked at it and that was her name. So, you know. uh,
0: Was it uh, Suzanne's habit to, like, if she left work, would she have just left? the name tag on like, to go home and...
1: Yeah, and some people, yeah. Yeah, people I mean, do what, that. You, what I do, do you... do you all the time. Okay, would you
0: say <laughs> that that did. was her habit to do that probably too? Because some people, yeah. you know, they're going to take I it off. Say, well, I don't want somebody to know that I work at this store, or, you know. Or well, some,
1: you know, the unusual thing about this, and, you know, there's, people always say there's always some something there we're missing here yeah. along the way. But yeah. um, the unusual thing is the fact that she never liked to wear the clothes that she had to wear to work, Um. At, you know, out out of work, so mm. she would bring a bag of clothes. The you know, and it was like a, a I don't know, tan colored pants and a certain colored shirt. I can't remember what it was, but it was the logo of the company that she worked for. So she would bring them with her, change at work, then once she got done with work, she would mm. change the clothes back and put them back in a bag and carry them home, or carry them back mm. to the dorm. So mm-hmm. if she would do that. Taken the badge off too, right? So that's that's always been a question high on my list. <laughs> yeah, but I never got any good answers to that.
0: Uh, do you have knowledge if she changed clothes that night after she? Oh yeah,
1: she did. Oh, yeah. She absolutely they, did. She, okay, she absolutely did. Uh, the uh, the man that she worked for, you know, the, her mm-hmm. boss at the mm-hmm. time, said that Susie would come in a little bit early uh, to work so she could. She could, um, you know, get into her work clothes and always started a little bit early, which meant that she could leave five minutes before the bus would come. Or mm-hmm. She'd leave five or ten minutes, you know, before the bus would come and change back into her, her, uh, you know, Outdoor clothes, basically jeans or whatever the kids were wearing at the time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um you know she would take those clothes off. She didn't want to wear those clothes out. I don't know why, but <laughs> that was her habit. You know,
0: well, maybe a, a fashion, you know, statement of some type. <laughs> you know, self conscious about her fashion or something like that. I, 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 I think I've known people who've. I've, I think I've had one or two jobs like that. You know, in my life where it maybe has like the name of a store or something on there and. You know, you know like
1: McDonald's or right. something. You don't want to wear your McDonald's uniform out, you know, advertising the uniform.
0: Yeah, may, so. maybe, maybe not. Uh, but yeah. just going back to the name tag. So what, it's possible that that night the name tag falls out. It sits there somewhere around the bus. She disappears. It sits there for a couple of days. Nobody notices it. And then the storm comes. The snow gets pushed away. The name tag gets caught up in the snow, and then these months later, or eight weeks later, the snow melts, and then the name tag appears. It shows up. That's possible.
1: That's possible. Okay.
0: Great. I just wanted to get that on the record. Okay, great. Um, Let's move on once again, uh, I guess, back to the boyfriend. The next day, he calls you and tells you that Suzanne has disappeared.
1: Yeah, he says um, – how did he word it? He worded it so that it didn't sound like, you know, geez, you know, Susie disappeared. What are we going to do about it? It wasn't like that. It says, mm. you know, did you know Susie didn't come home last night or something like that? And it was like a shock to me because I was getting ready. My husband was uh, reading a newspaper. I was getting ready so that we could go to meet my son was going to take me out for my birthday, which was the day before Susie disappeared. Mm -hmm. And um, so he called, you know, my son said, you know, we'll go out for lunch. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was getting ready. The phone rings and and he says, you know, did you know Susie didn't come back last night? It was like, what are you talking about? You know, I was like a little bit in shock because, uh, you know, why didn't you call me last night? (laughs) And why are you saying that? And he, so I I gave the phone to my husband, and my husband got the information from him saying that, you know, Susie didn't come back. He had tried to get into her computer, which he did. He got into her computer mm-hmm. and, um, you know, looked at different uh, emails or whatever. Right, we're going to – yeah, we'll get no into reason. that.
0: We'll get into that too, but for we'll, – yeah, we'll get into that. But he calls okay. and says and, and then yeah. – he, he, You hang up the phone and you go all My
1: husband went right down to Albany. Yeah, okay. I stayed here um, because I thought, you know, if if there were any phone calls, somebody would call me and I'd be here. Um, that was before, you know, I mean, cell phones were just coming
2: yeah, in. So yeah. we didn't have
1: the cell phone. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I uh, here and Doug went to Albany to... Uh, you know, go and talk with the police because the police weren't taking any report from just a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and uh, you know they were they were trying to convince us that uh, uh, well, maybe she just came home and she went and stayed in somebody else's room, fell asleep, and you know she'll yeah. show up again. You know, basically yeah. they poo in the whole thing.
0: So Do you, um, let me ask you this: if you know, uh, did. Suzanne and Rich have, you know, I'll admit I'm single at 46, but I know most people who are in relationships or married, they have kind of like a schedule. They call people at certain times of the day, maybe after they get off of work or or something like that. Yes. Would it have been Suzanne's inner habit maybe to call him when she got back to her dorm or something like that? Yes,
1: that was the habit, and that was basically the reason why he, you know – he did not contact us right away. When she got back, she usually got back to her dorm about quarter to ten. Mm-hmm. She left work at 9.30 or 9, 9.25 so that she could run to change her clothes and then catch the bus uh, back to the campus. Mm-hmm. And the campus made no stops between the mall she worked at and where she got off at of Visitor's Parking Lot, and it was about a ten-minute ride. And uh, so she made, you know, when she would get back to her um, to her dorm, which would have been about quarter to ten, she would make a phone call to him or she would email him to let him know that she Mm -hmm. was back. And uh, she didn't do it that night. And he started, according to her roommates or you know her their quad mates,
2: because Mm -hmm.
1: this is like a a four a four room quad okay. that she lived in, and according to them, they hadn't heard her come in. Um, she normally would come in, and she had a lot of keys on a key fob, and it would hit the door, and they could hear the noise when she walked in,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they never heard that. So, But all they heard all night long was the phone ringing. The phone kept ringing and ringing because okay. he was trying to call.
0: So there is a record of at least somebody trying to call her on her phone that night yes. trying to reach her figure out where she was we don't know necessarily if it was him or not but somebody was looking for her
1: somebody was looking for her okay yeah yeah that was
0: okay so the next day don't quite know about the atm situation yet but you start this search and does the does um he take part in
1: it he, I don't know what he actually, I think he might have tried, you know, getting a hold of the police. I don't think he ever really went to the campus. Mm-hmm. My husband went to the campus, um, and he called around 9.30 in the morning, which, you know, we're, we're saying 12 hours after she was not heard from. Mm. So we've got 12 hours gone already, and so Doug goes down to the campus, and it, t- it takes him, you know, got himself, right down there and he was down there by um maybe 11 o'clock in the morning and he went right to the police and you know talked to them in the meantime i thought what do i do while i'm sitting here um and i thought about her credit cards and i thought maybe because all her credit card statements would come to us Mm -hmm. and she had maybe two credit cards she didn't have a lot but they would come here her bank you know, book, I knew what she had in her bank account because all the statements would come here. And um, so I started to call. Uh, I called because I knew she had an ATM account. So I called it. I think by the time I figured that all out, it was around, um, you know, 2.30 or about maybe, yeah, quarter after three, I'd say, that I got a hold of an ATM agent for her ATM card. And I was talking to this woman on the telephone. She was in Seattle, Washington, and I'm looking at the clock and about ten minutes before mm-hmm. she says to me, I think that card just got used.
0: That had that had to been a that had to been a crazy moment for you. That, that had to have been was. a really surreal uh, moment. Was. Yeah.
1: And I'm saying, Where did it get used? And she said, I can't tell you that because We, you know, this particular company was Cirrus, Mm -hmm. and Cirrus gets their receipts the next day. At that time, I don't know what they do now, but at that time, you know, all the receipts for the day before would come into the the company the next day. And she said, I can tell you tomorrow morning, but I can't tell you right now. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, can you tell me anything about it? And she said um, the PIN number was a direct PIN number. Direct hit on the pin number.
0: So, and, and what that means is that somebody used the card and somebody got the pin right the first time. Right the first time. Nobody like tried to mess around. Hit one two three no. four one two three five. It was no. whatever it was the first time. Boom.
1: The first time it was the right pin number. Okay. So um, I was, you know, like, what else can you tell me? She says, like, I can't tell you anything else. So first. First thing the next morning, this woman, like I said, Seattle, Washington, she called me up and she told me that um, the receipts were turned in and uh, twenty five dollars was taken out of the uh, account.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was it, which was kind of the usual thing that Susan, twenty dollars I'm Tw- sorry twenty dollars $20 okay. was was the usual thing that she had taken out. and she had taken out the day before the day she disappeared at around, I would say, 4 o'clock or or 3.30 or 4 o'clock, from a bank across from the campus, she had taken 20 out. And then she got to the the, uh, mall where she worked and took 20 more out at the Mm mall. So, you know, maybe to buy supper, I don't know. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, I'm going to ask you this because, once again, this is going to become, uh, for the listeners, this is going to become relevant later. Are you sure she used the card both those times? Definitely.
1: Yes. I okay. believe that, okay. yes, because at the time, uh, there was a, c- a camera at the bank where she took the first 20 out. And when she got to the mall, I believe there was a camera in the mall at their ATM machine where she took the second 20 okay. out. Okay. so they saw her there and both mm-hmm. times. Okay. So it was her. But... When they got to the the uh, place where the the card was used
0: on March third,
1: on March the third, well, I was on the telephone with the ATM mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. Um, the the surveillance camera was not over the ATM machine. Right. It was it was over the counter, where the cash register was for the store that uh, the convenience store that you. Uh, that you know was used.
0: So the camera is uh, once again for the listeners what that means is that the camera was pointed at the registers probably because the owner of the store might have wanted to make sure somebody wasn't ripping them off in contrast to like today almost 20 years later what seems like every convenience store has like 10 cameras all over the place.
1: Yeah exactly there was only the one camera over the cash register in that convenience
0: store. And where was the ATM in that in that store?
1: Just inside the doorway, so when somebody would come in, they could go right to the ATM machine, do their business, uh, get money out, maybe go to the mm. counter and buy what they wanted to buy and have the cash on hand. Right. That particular machine gave cash. Okay. Some, some machines give script, but that one I was told gave cash.
0: Right. And this, by the way, is this is also how the guy with the Nike hat got involved, because He was in the store right around the time that that ATM spit out the money.
1: Exactly. Okay, so that's
0: how that all ties itself up together.
1: And and the reason that you saw the Nike hat was because the camera was overhead, so it was kind of a a bird's-eye view. So all you got was the the hat with the brim and maybe a little part of this guy's nose, really no facial, you know, um right familiarity you couldn't get you know there was no face there i mean it was basically. But the,
0: but the police finally found him somehow finally
1: located him he he had a um what do have a, a jacket he had a, oh, yeah. it was a um, a winter jacket that was a a particular brand and that was another reason that he was identified with because of the jacket the hat and it, it was months later when they finally identified him. It right. It wasn't like overnight. They, yeah, and that's you – know, It took a long time to and find that's, him, but they did find him. They
0: did find – that's why it's weird 18 years Car. later that, that – yeah. Okay, that's the name of the, the make of the jacket. The company, right. Yeah, right. the
1: company of the jacket.
0: Yeah. Right, and that's – but going back, to you said it took them a while, but still you'd think 18 years later that – you know, some of these people would would clean their you know their information up. How did her boyfriend find out that she was missing? He called you, but how did he find out?
1: He because she didn't call him, so he tried calling her. Okay. And he kept calling her and calling her, claiming that that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think my husband asked him, well, why didn't you go down there? And he he said he didn't really have an explanation, but when the police talked to him. His explanation was he was he uh, or his his uh, alibi was he was playing a game on the computer with one of his friends and his friend um, when she disappeared I, when she disappeared okay. yeah
2: okay and this
1: friend identified him by the fact that he said I knew all his moves in other words the moves on this particular mm,
2: game,
1: own game. it
0: he should was how far in. We maybe need to clear this up, too. How far did her boyfriend live from the Albany campus? He didn't go to school there, but he lived close.
1: Yes, he did. He lived maybe, um, I would say, if he got on the the north way, probably about 10 to 12 minutes away. Yep. Not right. very far.
0: Okay, getting back to the question of how he, he found out. So he just took for granted that because she didn't pick up the phone, not even the next day that he never she never came back, or did finally somebody pick up the phone in that dorm, or did he drive down there and find one of her roommates or something, and they said, no, Suzanne never came home last night?
1: No, he just decided that she was missing. That that was what his okay. – that's right. You know, but just talking to you about this really brings a lot of this us- – Back, you know. I mean, these are questions that mm-hmm. need to be asked from the police again. You know, we mm-hmm. need to go over this and over this. Yeah. There's a there's a clue somewhere.
0: Well, I, I I ask the questions because either I don't know them or haven't read them, and I you know I don't that want this. I don't want you though. to. I don't. I'm, this is not a point of trying to relive this over again no. for you. You know, that's that's not why I do this. But no, I, I'm just asking questions as you're answering them. You know, I, yeah. just some, just a thing that pops into my head. Once again, you can answer it. Great. If you don't know, that's fine, too. You know, that, that's yeah. fine, too. Um, now, you did a show. Now, we should say any, something before we continue. Nobody has – there is no suspect in this crime. Nobody's – like, there's a woman that I've interviewed uh, that's going to be on a future show, and she always likes to say nobody's been included. Nobody's been excluded in the disappearance of Suzanne Lau. Okay, that is right. a fact. All right, that's a fact. Right. We have to establish that right now for the listeners. However, you did a show uh, You did a show called Disappeared back in yes. 2011, 2012, where you were very, uh, let's put it this way, there was a strong feeling there that you thought that her boyfriend had something to do with it. Okay, yes. now t- can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I can talk about it. Um, you know, for a long time, the police pretty much said, don't say anything, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, 18 years have gone by, and I just got to the point where I just couldn't hold back anymore. But, you know, just the fact that here was a guy who claimed to be her boyfriend, lived about 10 to 12 minutes away from the campus, realized Mm -hmm. that she didn't come home that night, and didn't drive down to find out where she was. Mm -hmm. Most people would say, Yes. Um, you know, if it was my boyfriend or girlfriend, I'd want to know where they were.
2: You know, right. <laughs> I want to
1: right. go check, you know. Yeah. Most boys, most guys would do that.
0: And now, do you did, think that he didn't? Now, this is once again another point that was, you know, that we've talked about, you know, we've originally talked. Could it be the reason he didn't go down there is because maybe they weren't a couple anymore?
1: Well, I was wondering that also, but, um, you know, from the fact that he did call the next day to tell us, you know, that Mm. she didn't come back to her room, so they could have, maybe he still thought they were a couple. I thought around Valentine's Day that she gave him the Dear John letter, but we never knew for sure. You know, and that was only Mm. two weeks before she disappeared. And I know that every time she tried to break up with him, he would just, get very emotional and throw a real fit about it. So, And she was the kind of a person who couldn't take that kind of emotion, you know, that mm. she always felt sorry for, you know, the underdog, basically. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if he had her pretty much, you know, under his thumb.
0: Do you think that that is something that she would have explicitly told you? Hey, Ma, you know that I broke up with Rich last week. Do you, do you think I that was... There
1: were, I knew there were times when she uh, she tried um, you know, where she, and she didn't actually tell him in person, mm. she would write a long letter and then hand him the letter and he would get home, open the letter, and about 10 minutes later you'd hear the telephone ring and you'd hear her on the phone, you know, arguing mm. with him and eventually, you know, they would get back together again.
0: So this was a, a relationship that had its ups and downs?
1: It sure did, yep. It okay,
0: did. okay. So, once again, we just have to establish that he, is, he has been interviewed by the police, maybe not recently, no. but at the time, maybe a little, a few months after, wherever, whenever, he's been interviewed. He has seemingly a decent alibi with yeah. the, the video. Of course, nobody saw him, no. but he's playing video games. This friend, whoever he is, is vouching for him. That alibi has never been broken. No. Okay. However, given that he is a computer expert, just like Suzanne was, maybe okay. there's the possibility that he could have maybe programmed the computer to do something. Because there are, you know, that
1: always been my contention is that he programmed that computer to play that game, and mm-hmm. was not and uh, not where he said he was. And you know, um, right after he a, after Susie disappeared, and the police would want to talk to him and his family, they finally got a lawyer, um, right. very high-priced lawyer, and that was it. Police can't unless you have you know probable cause, you cannot mm-hmm. bother the person anymore. So basically, the victim has less rights than the perpetrator. Yeah. That sent up
0: red flags for me. <laughs> yeah, um, let's move on to let's move on to, to something else, and it has to do with, and this this is takes us to the E T M question again. That Rich and Suzanne had a favorite movie movie called Hackers. That's All right. right, and you told me about that the first time we talked. I've watched the movie. Right. I, I I watched it from beginning. To end, and I can tell you, I even took a few notes during it, the, you know, just to kind of run through my head after I was done watching it. You know, it's kind of it was kind of interesting seeing Angelina Jolie 21 years ago, with the, you know she had this very boyish haircut, and right. it was very 90s, you know. And being 25 at the time that the movie came out, it certainly brought back some memories. But there's a specific part in that movie that is relevant to this case. And it's right. almost like a weird coincidence, almost, yeah. if you believe in that sort of thing. In the movie, in the first quarter of the movie, one of the, it's a, the movie of Hackers is about these people, as you can imagine, computer, young computer kids in high school, um, kind of like, uh, I guess from my generation, it would have been like Ferris Bueller's day off, going in and switching his grades. Well, these guys did a lot more. We're doing a lot more than that in this movie. Right. And the one guy was bragging about what getting into an ATM machine, hacking it, and causing it to sp- spit out money somewhere. All right, yeah. And then here we have, just three years later, that movie came out in 95. In 98, you have Suzanne disappear, and the next day, that ATM in that store spits out that $20 bill, and seemingly nobody saw anybody come in and use that machine. Now, granted, it wasn't caught on camera, but nobody remembers anybody using the machine.
1: Well, the police actually, um, when they when they realized the ATM machine might be, you know, some factor, they were able to get um, about a half an hour before and a half an hour after that time frame that um, for uh, mm. three. Uh, 350. You know, 10 minutes before, um, of all the people who used the machine, and they were able to speak with everybody, and that's how this Nike guy, the one mm-hmm. they referred to as the Nike guy, right. um, was the only one that they could not identify right away. He was the only one, and that's why he became a suspect. And basically, mm-hmm. he became a suspect because the the boyfriend's family decided that he should be the suspect. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones who put up all the posters with his picture. Uh, uh, The
0: boyfriends, Rich, the boyfriend's family put those posters up.
1: Yeah, and they also bought a billboard with uh, Susie on one side of the billboard and the Nike man on the other side. Can you identify this man? So that would throw any suspicions away from anybody else for a long time, and it did. That billboard was up for six months.
0: Now it, sh- it should also be noted, nobody saw Suzanne go in and use that machine that no. day. No. No.
1: And it, and this was the other thing about that was it was about uh, two and a half miles from the campus. Mm. Susie wasn't much of a walker, and I don't think she would have walked down there. She did not drive. She didn't have a driver's license or a car, mm. and uh, in order to take a bus, it would have been out of her way to get a bus to that area. So I don't think Susie was there. I know she
0: was. Did you not also tell me the first time we talked that a branch of her bank is very close to there?
1: Right across the street.
0: So if she's going to go so, use the – if it was her that day, and maybe, yeah. maybe she had some sort of – you know, let's um, you know, just, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, I don't know what, you know, the medical term, but kind of just an amnesia or something like that. If she needed to use the ATM and could look at this card and say, well, I have this ATM, and maybe she knows the number, she would have gone to the bank, not to the... She
1: would have gone across the street, yeah. Right. Ruby was smart enough right. to right. spend any extra money if she didn't. And she had talked to me, actually, on my birthday, which was March the 1st, um, and she said she said how she was low on money. Um, and if, you know, I said, well, do you want me to send you some? Because I could have put some money in her bank account because I had access to her bank account. And she said, no, she could wait till Thursday of that week because that was the day she was going to get paid. And she still had enough, you know, cash left in the ATM that she could take cash anytime she needed it. So, and also the, the other thing was um, after she disappeared, there was a, a little jar full of money um, on her desk full of change. So it was like, you know, not a yeah. lot, maybe 8 or $9 in change mm-hmm. that she used for the, you know, the washing machine and probably for, uh, you know, candy machine or whatever. So, you know, it wasn't like she was completely broke. Yeah. So, you know, why would she go all the way down to this convenience store, you know, about two and a half miles from her campus when she had stores all around? And, you know, uh, across the street from the campus, there was an ATM uh, machine in a bank that was her bank. So, you know, I don't think that was her that did that.
0: Uh, I'll ask you this. Does the boyfriend have an alibi for where he was when the ATM was used? We know he has an, an, an alibi for... The, the night he before. He
1: he was out looking for her. Okay. we don't know. Okay. Yep.
0: All right. All right. Uh, let's move on uh, to something else. And once again, we're going to have to say for the record that um, nobody has been included or excluded from this investigation. Okay, that's yep. why it's still unsolved um, 18 years later.
2: Yeah.
0: We haven't talked about... Let's just – I know we, we had a wide-ranging interview the first time we talked, but I want to just keep it to this. The, the boyfriend's father assisted in the search for Suzanne, okay? But what happened?
1: I, I don't really I – don't, I don't remember saying that his,
0: he did. Well, well I guess what I'm trying to put this lightly. He started calling in, having sightings of Suzanne. Dan. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. He he actually. Can we can was, we talk
0: about can we talk about that? Do you feel comfortable sure. talking? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. He he actually um, he would tell the police, you know, how he was. I think at one time he was like an auxiliary policeman, whatever that means, mm-hmm. you know, in this little town or whatever. Big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I remember we were in we were waiting in a room. Um, at the campus, and one of the things that he said out loud was to his son, if you think you've you've met the police, you know, regular police, wait till you meet the state police. You know, in other words, they're the big guys. You know, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that are going to really take over. So he he was really kind of almost uh, enamored with police type people. So uh, several weeks after Susie disappeared, he called the state police to say he was He said, I know what happened to Suzanne. I was driving uh, down the road, and uh, I saw a car that looked just like my son's car. Same color, same stickers on the car. Everything was exactly the same. He said, so I pulled up alongside so I could wave, Mm -hmm. and the guy that looked at me looked just like my son, but it wasn't my son. So he figured that night this guy must have gone to the campus,
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This fictitious guy, okay, and and Susie when she got off of he knew when she got off the bus and you know called her over and she thought it was my son and she got in the car with him. So that was his first story. Okay. another story that he he continued to uh,
0: now to, just for the record, how do you know that happened? The police told you that?
1: Oh, yeah, the police told
0: And there are police that. records in the state of New York right now that that happened. Just, what's again, ahead. for the record, yeah. for the listeners. Yep. Okay.
1: Yep. All right, please the continue. Thing, okay, go ahead. The other thing was um, he was a truck driver himself at the time, and he drove his truck to um, uh, a small town about 25, 30 miles away from here uh, called Amsterdam. Loversville, Amsterdam area, and he he said he would stop at this coffee shop every every day that he drives the truck there, and he said, I'd see Suzanne sitting out on a bench just outside this coffee shop, um, which <laughs> kind of threw me for a loop there, okay. because how in the heck would she get there? But anyway, um, he would see her sitting on the bench. So he told the police this. He said, I saw her at least eight times. And so the police said, look, I'm going to give you one of our telephones. The next time you see her on that bench, you call us. We'll have a the policeman there in two minutes. And uh, so, you know, two weeks went by, and they actually had some undercover police following him around. And um, they saw, they saw um, he, he uh, got on the telephone, and he called, and he said, she's out there sitting on the bench right now. And the other two police are saying... What's he talking
0: about and the, the two cops that. are right there as well in an unmarked yeah. car seeing what the, saying, the father's saying yeah. and they're seeing nothing
1: nothing they saw nothing so that was you know that was another sighting you know uh, debacle I'm and going to
0: he, I'm going to guess that the calls probably stopped shortly after those sightings stopped shortly after that if
1: yeah case. but he did he had one more where there's a there's a college here in Schenectady it's called uh, Union College. And he claimed he was driving, it was like, I don't know, May or June, very hot day. And he said, I saw Susie in her long winter coat and boots walking through that campus um, in, in uh, Union College. Um, that particular day, he called the police to tell him that. Is he crazy? I don't know. But yeah. that was another one that, you know...
0: Did you get to know him very well while, while Suzanne and Rich dated? Did you get to know
1: him? Uh, I didn't really get to know him very well. Um, Susie did. I know she, you know, they were going out and he would, they would see each other every weekend. Mm-hmm. And that was the one thing that was kind of unusual was um, the, the mother claimed that the father didn't know Susie very well. And I said, I, I got upset with her. And I said, how can you say that? She sobbed every weekend that they dated Mm -hmm. and there were times when you know he would come out and try to um you know help his son fix the car and the two of them were there i said she knew that and then when we brought Susie down to oneana he showed up with some carpets and things that Susie had stored um you know Mm -hmm. in a, a storage locker uh the father, the mother, and the son all showed up at Oneana. So it wasn't like he didn't know her; he knew her. Um, so I don't, I don't know.
0: I, so I get, but what you're, so he family. was, so what you're saying is the the family of her boyfriend were helpful at times. I mean, they showed up and brought some things and.
1: Not that we asked them to, no? and I okay, remember no. when they showed okay. up at Oneana I said, right. I, I remember, you know, we, we were going to take Susie out to eat after, and I remember seeing um, uh, them show up, and I, I said to her right away, I said, there's no way they're going out to eat with us. You know that already, don't you? And she was, yes, I do. Okay. I said, okay, because <laughs> I, I didn't care for any of them. <laughs> and that was before she, long before she disappeared, I didn't mm-hmm. like them.
0: But just to be clear for the record, what you're saying here is on the record, New York State police or local police stuff, these, these things that he did that turned out to be false sightings. Yeah. All right? Okay. Just this is not some, you know, sour grapes or anything like that. We're just – once again, I know you're telling the truth, but I just want to hear – you know, I want to make sure my listeners understand that. Okay? Right. That, that's all okay. I'm trying to do with this. Okay. Because as long as there is a record of that happening, then, you know, then that's, then that's factual to me. Um, what do you think happened to your daughter?
1: I, I really wish I, I could, you know, um, look at a magic ball and say I know exactly what happened to mm-hmm. her. I really don't know. I, I know that she made it back to the campus that night. She mm-hmm. was witnessed by a a girl who was getting on the bus um, that Mm -hmm. saw her getting off the bus Mm -hmm. and so I know she made it to the campus from then then on I really don't know my feeling is that her boyfriend or some member of his family came Mm -hmm. to the campus and she knew them and she would get in the car with any of those people and Mm -hmm. something bad happened I just I really don't know.
0: You know, um, the, the theme of this, this uh, show, that I, you know, and I, I can't thank you enough, and we're going to continue on with some other things. We're going to move on to what you've been doing since. Um, but this, this show, the theme of it is about transitional areas, about safety, you know, being aware of the, your surroundings and, and things like that. Because that was what really struck me uh, about, uh, you know, your daughter's case. And I told you from the beginning, this is still a case, I think, that can be solved. I think, you know, with, you know, with the right, um, you know, sleuthing, investigates, cold case work or whatever else. But with each of these shows, you know, I try to teach the listeners about something. And and I do think about women out there uh, today, 2016, who, you know, have their heads in their phones, this, there, and they set themselves up for being abducted, being abducted, being attacked, being raped. You know, and becoming a missing person. I'm not. I don't think that's what happened in your daughter's case. Okay, but she was in one of those transitional areas, moving from the bus to her dorm. You know, those are the places, those transitional areas. You'll see a lot of self-defense experts uh, talk about that. So, for any of you women out there listening, this is the stuff you really have to be aware of. I don't care if it's on a college campus, places that you're uh, places that you're familiar with. If somebody has their eye on you and you're not paying attention to your surroundings, um, you know you could be, you know, setting yourself up. Now let's move on to to what's uh, been going on since. I talk to me about Suzanne's law.
1: Okay, um, there are actually I have two laws. Please um, tell us about them. Yeah, um, Suzanne's law. Uh, there, the first law that we passed was in. Um, Uh, It was called the New York State College Safety Act of 1999, and it actually became law in 2000. And uh, it was an act to amend the education law uh, in relation to requiring colleges and universities to implement plans uh, for the investigation of violent felonies and reports of missing students occurring on their campuses. Um, So... Uh, basically, uh, they, they wanted uh, you know, the police to actually have some sort of a plan in place so that if a, if a kid went missing on a college campus or if there was anything violent like rape or whatever, mm-hmm. um, they were able to um, you know, have, have a plan so that all police agencies would get involved in this. And that became a New York state law in 2000. Um, and then um, in 2008, it became a federal law, uh, uh-huh. and it's called the Suzanne, Suzanne Lyles, uh Campus Safety Act is a federal law now, and that was uh, 2008 um, uh-huh. when that one was passed. In 2003, we... We had been working, well, to try to get Suzanne listed with the National Center for Missing Children, but the National Center for Missing Children did not take um, children after the age of 18, up to the age of, uh, they would only take them up to the age of their 18th birthday.
2: So Mm
1: -hmm. once you became 18, that was it, and we felt that students that, you know, are in college or you know graduate, and up to the age of 21, they're kind of vulnerable. That's a whole vulnerable group. Yes. And we work very diff- very hard to get a law passed. And it, in uh, 2003, that law became Suzanne's Law. Um, okay. And it requires the national uh, it requires police to notify the National Crime Information Center when someone between the ages of 18 and 21 is reported missing as a part of the National Amber Alert Bill. And um, so now what that law did is it actually um, uh, raised the age from 18 to your 21st birthday. And now once the police make the call, they can call the National Center for Missing Children and get those children listed with the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. Um, Right. And uh, the, the beauty of this law is that people who went missing before this law went into place, before 2003, can be grandfathered into the system. So um, I have a, one lady I can, I, uh, that I can put my finger on right away. Her son went missing. He was 20. He was uh, at, at the, uh, Columbia University, and he went missing in 1972. And this woman never had any any, you know, areas to look or search or any help or anything like that. And we got him listed with the National Center for Missing Children. So this man now is in his sixties, but he's still listed on their webpage
2: wow. as
1: a missing person. Because he went missing at twenty. So that's the beauty of this law. So I really feel that Suzanne's law Put a lot of uh, young young people who never would have had any um, you know help for mm-hmm. the families any help uh, with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. What was
0: that process like? I mean, getting you know you've you've become an advocate now, and then getting involved with with the politics, getting a law passed. What was what was that experience like for you?
1: Well, it was uh, it was <laughs> it was interesting because. When the first law passed in New York State, and I'm thinking, "Wow, this was pretty easy." <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. know you could pass laws that easily. And people would say to me, "How did you get this thing passed?" I don't know if it was because she was an attractive college student that went missing that you know the law passed right away, or mm-hmm. what. But um, then we found out that we really had to uh, you know become a non for profit organization in order to really have some, you know, you know, fight behind us, basically. So mm-hmm. we became an, uh, a uh, non-for-profit organization to help other people with missing family members. And once we did that, it seemed very easy to talk to representatives or, you know, federal mm-hmm. representatives to see if we could pass another law or to even, uh, you know, get uh, get our campus safety law it was 2008. And at the time, um, she now is New York State Senator, um, federal senator, but her name was Christian Gillibrand, and she was a Mm -hmm. representative. Mm -hmm. And at that time, she hadn't passed a law yet. (laughs) So we went to see her, and guess what? She worked hard with uh, uh, Charles Schumer, uh, Mm -hmm. Senator Schumer, and the two of them passed the uh, Suzanne Lyle Campus Safety Act in 2008.
0: That had um, to feel like uh, quite an accomplishment for you. It
1: was a big accomplishment, and it was a big accomplishment for her too. And yeah. the one that passed in uh, two thousand and three was another one um, that uh, we actually spoke with a, a representative, and he, you know, he said he filibustered all night, and then the, the next morning he called us to say we passed the law. I said, "Wow, that's great." Mm-hmm. So
2: yeah.
1: it was, you know, we we said. I can't believe this happened. People would say to us, how do you get those things going? I don't know. It just worked. It just, we hit the right people at the right time.
0: Yeah, and yeah, and yeah, you're not, these people aren't going to drop through the cracks anymore.
1: No, no, that's the way I look at it. And anytime I get a phone call from a family member that says, you know, their child 18 to 21 has gone missing, I immediately get them, Hooked up with Suzanne's law, and you know, to get get a hold of the National Center for Missing Children, mm-hmm. uh, you have to have your police agency call. But it's a federal law; they have to do it you now, and that helps them because uh, you know they get they can request posters if they need you know posters. They they can request um, uh, investigators that are retired that will look at your case. They, you know, they'll get a lot of help that they wouldn't have gotten had they, you know, um, were not able to get into uh, the National Center for Missing Children. If it's a child under the age of 18, they'll take them right away. But Mm. anybody over that age of 18 to 21, it's, it's a little sticky.
0: Yeah, probably because a lot of those kids, you know, they now have their independence. You know, some of them do leave the house on their own. You know they dis right. you know they disappear on, on on their own in fact, probably if there was some study done, I'm sure you'd find that eighteen to twenty one a you know age range is probably being most likely to just say, heck, I'm out of here and you know and yeah. it not t- technically be a disappearance. it's just somebody moving from New York to California
1: you exactly know, yeah. and you know and and you yes. find families that have lost touch with these children and you know, and then all of a sudden they say, "Wow, I haven't talked to a so so for a long time." you know, what's happened to them and then find out that they're they're no longer around or they got caught up with, you know, some bad situation that, you know, they, mm-hmm. can, they can't get out of, which is what happens to a lot of those young people.
0: You know, I want to ask you a question. If you have an in, some insight into it, I'm sure the listeners will, would love to, have, to hear you talk about it. You've turned uh, Suzanne's disappearance into two laws. Uh, it's quite an accomplishment we know of other uh, parents family members for example kelly murphy project jason who, who turned her son's disappearance into something very positive as well yeah. on the other hand i know because you know i've taken interest in disappearances for years now that there are many parents who and family members who kind of go the opposite direction that you know i for example can't even begin to tell you how many websites that are supposed to feature you know, a, a missing person or something like that. You go to the website and the link doesn't even work anymore. Yeah, where what can you do? You have any insight into that? Why some people choose to go one direction and then it seems like other people go the other?
1: Well, there's some people that are real advocates. You know, like um, Kelly, for example, mm, right? uh, uh, Project Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, when Kelly's son disappeared. There was nothing out there in uh, Nebraska, where she was from, Mm -hmm. that was helping her. And she located us on on a webpage and um, called us and said, is it okay if I come out to see what you're doing? And Mm -hmm. she made the trip about two or three times in a a row, came every Mm -hmm. year to our Missing Persons Day, and then eventually Kelly decided to go out on her own and Mm. and become her own um, advocate Um, I know many other families who have um, you know chosen to become advocates for the missing because their child went missing and you know maybe the time uh, for us you know 18 years ago there really wasn't a lot out there for us
2: yeah and we
1: just you know, we we didn't know where to turn. We didn't know what to do. Maybe we were doing all the wrong things, but we didn't know, and we had nobody to ask. And so we just decided that we would become advocates for this. My husband uh, was a counselor, and you know, he mm-hmm. kind of knew that you know helping people was the way to go. And mm-hmm. um, we decided to turn our tragedy into something that would help other people, so they wouldn't. Get so far down as we got yeah, in the beginning, yeah. and bet. you know, I just bet. turn it around.
0: Do you think though that that is the reason? You know, some people like it hurts so much to think about it that oh, you know after after a while they just kind of want to move away from it, even if it is a, a son or daughter. Because I'm telling you, as a person, and of course, I ho- I don't have any children, but I hope that never happens to me with you know my parents or you know a family member. I don't wish that upon anybody. No, but So I'm not going to say, I know how you feel. I don't. I don't.
1: No, and but there's a lot of people who, and I think it's um, the same way as going to a funeral or a wake, you know, and you go mm-hmm. and you you, you say, to, you don't know what to say. So you say, yeah. oh yeah, you know, I know how you feel. Um, but what happens with a lot of people is they, they want to tell you to move on, you know,
2: mm-hmm. stop
1: dwelling on it, you know, get past it, you know, you're not going to be able to do, well, it's, it, I don't care if if that person eventually comes back being alive or deceased mm. it doesn't matter if if it happens the family is always going to have that hole in their heart there's a hole there and it, it never heals up yeah. and i think that's the you know that's the bottom line is that sometimes some people have such a deep hole they wind up getting divorced they can't Cope with each other anymore. Yeah. They um, they have health issues. They have um, uh, drinking problems, drug problems, because that's the only way that takes the pain away for them. And you know, yeah. I I don't like to hear that, but I do hear that a lot. Yeah, I, I hear you. that a lot. Uh, families that just haven't been able to cope. I mean, they're yeah. they're strong for a while, but then they just. Lose it after a while they don't you know don't think that there's any any more hope i mean
2: mm.
1: that's uh the reason why we you know started our organization and you know, the
0: name of your organization please
1: it's called the center for hope and hope meaning um healing our painful emotions I mean, you know how do you come up with some <laughs> something mm-hmm. to add to that but that's what it is it's really painful it's it's the worst pain that you can experience. Um, you know, every little thing around you reminds you of that person that's disappeared. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's like... And then there's no... Clo- there, well, I don't even like that word. Closure mm-hmm. resolves in any of these cases because when a person dies, they have a place to go to to grieve that person. There's mm-hmm. always a gravesite or something. With a missing person, they have nothing, Uh, which is why we have um, Missing Persons Day once a year, and uh, New York State, in New York State, we have a monument for missing people. Um, And where is it? Where is it? uh, It's right in downtown Albany, right next to the New York State Museum. Okay. It's uh, 20 feet high. It has a perpetual flame at the top, and uh, around the base which is uh, eight foot by eight foot granite base. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, uh, as a symbol of our eternal hope, may this flame light their way home. And I, I have to tell you, there have been many times when I've been down there to that monument where there's uh, a poster there, uh, a stuffed animal, flowers. People go there and sit and grieve. Yeah. They have a place to, to you know, actually feel that missing person. Um, there have been uh, candlelight vigils at that monument because people, you know, have somebody who's missing and it's the place they want to go and have a vigil just because they're hoping that that kind of publicity will bring that person back. Yeah.
0: Now, Suzanne, she had at least one other sibling, right? You have a son.
1: I have a son and a daughter.
0: And and how, how did that affect them? I mean, what... <laughs>
1: It was very difficult for them, although they were grown up. Susie was our youngest child. Mm-hmm. Um, my son was twelve, um, going on thirteen when she was born. My daughter was uh, almost nine, going on mm-hmm. ten. And um, so, you know, they they were kind of like second parents to them. My my son adored her. He he'd take her to the concerts when she got to be her, you know. Right age.
0: Yeah, your daughter um, Suzanne was, was a Rush fan, as she I said. Oh, yeah. I like Rush myself. Yeah, and she
1: yeah. had about twenty. She had about twenty three CDs. Wow. Of Rush before she wow. disappeared, which I was amazed because mm. she was really into Rush.
0: She had really and good whenever, musical taste.
1: Whenever Rush came to you know our local area here um, in Saratoga back, um, she my son would take her he didn't want her going to concerts by herself so mm-hmm. he would take her mm-hmm. um just to tell you the age difference when he went to his first year of college he was going into first grade wow <laughs> just well, to give you
0: yeah why well, well you should know uh, i don't know if i told you that the first time we talked but i have two brothers and a sister who are quite a bit older than i am as well i actually have a sister who's my brothers and my sister are all almost twenty years older than I am, so
1: oh, there you go. I, I know, yeah, I her, know, so it was the baby, kid. yeah, yep, the baby, and everybody treated her yeah. you know, yes, kind of uh, that way, and you know it was hard for them, um they were a little bit older, but I'll tell you when I talk to families who have a child that's gone missing, and i'm I'm saying child because everybody is somebody's child, I don't care who it is. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're 55 years old and you go missing, you were somebody's child at one point. But anybody who has a child that has gone missing and has young siblings, um, I usually tell those families, please, you know, do something with them. Even if it's to take them out for an ice cream cone or something, don't let them feel neglected because you become so focused in trying to find the missing person that you forget about the sibling, and I have heard stories about siblings who have um I know of one who committed suicide after uh, wow. how many years of the family being so focused and trying to find the young sibling mm-hmm. that she couldn't cope anymore she just couldn't handle it anymore so it it you know it's very difficult for them yeah. they don't say anything but they do feel neglected
0: yeah so um well, to, to wrap this up, what else? What else should be covered here? Where can pe- You know, where can people reach you, my listeners? Uh, you have a nonprofit organization. Do you take donations? What? Yes. What else? What else do you want to talk about?
1: Um, well, we can be reached at. Um, the, it's called the Center for Hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in. We're in upstate New York. We're uh, twenty Prospect Street, Boston Spa, New York. 12020 um, i do have a webpage which is uh, hope the number 4 the missing.org
0: okay hope for the missing so, with a 4 is the numeral, numeral 4 yeah, okay
1: yeah uh .org and um, it can be reached by telephone uh, which is also on our webpage but i'll give you the number it's uh 518 884 8761
2: Okay. And
1: uh, those those telephone calls that come into the office, uh, we take them as they come in because I get about maybe 30 or 40 a week <laughs> missing people, so yeah. I have to take them as they come in.
0: Are, can I ask you, are you working on any legislation or anything right now? Do you think that's behind you, or you think you are going to do something even more regarding politics? I think politics? I
1: would like to, you know... Uh, look at some other things we haven't you know actually one of the things that we did do um you know we kind of got out of the legislation area for a while and mm-hmm. we we produced uh, decks of playing cards with mm-hmm. um 52 missing person cases on the cards one on each card um the cards were passed out throughout new york state uh to the different jails
2: mm-hmm. and uh
1: we actually, I think we had over thirty thousand cards out there—thirty thousand decks of cards. Um, we uh, also produced um, coasters um, that were sent out to um, uh, the different bars and restaurants in the capital district, and we we picked out um, people who were missing through the capital district for our mm. our. Uh, coasters hoping that if somebody had a drink and, you know, loosened up a little bit, yeah. um, on the back of the card, there's a place where they can either text or, um, scan and, uh, you know, make a phone call to a, uh, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: place. So, you know, we got out of doing some legislation because we were in, involved in the, in the cards and the coasters. But there are other things that need to be you know resolved, and we you know
0: there's still holes there's still holes in the laws that you'd like to see closed
1: oh, yeah, there's lots of holes, and like you okay. said, I think from the time Susie disappeared to now, so much has happened for the older group of students the older group of people that you know through our laws um, i I often get a phone call from an organization saying. If it wasn't for Suzanne's Law, you know, uh, this lady or this person would not have been able to get their child listed with the National Center and, you know, an Amber Alert wasn't, you know, set out or whatever. So, you know, it does make me proud. And unfortunately, mm. my husband is no longer with us. He passed away last mm. year. And um, so it's a little harder for me to do things, but I'm still trying.
0: I'm still yeah. working at it, right.
1: and I will until I find my daughter.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, Mary, I I can tell you, I'm going to be praying for you. I hope that my listeners listeners are praying for you, if if that's their belief system. And uh, I know we're all going to do what we can to try to get this resolved for you. We're not going to say closure, but we're going to say resolved. Okay, Okay.
1: yes. That's the word you want to use. You do never want to use closure with a family with a missing person, because there's never any closure, if you think about it. It's not the same as a, when a person dies from a disease or natural death. That's closure. Right. That's not
0: Mary. I, I've deeply enjoyed this interview, and I can't I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me. All well, right. I thank
1: you also for even interviewing me. Oh. That's great. Well, thank you so much.
0: You're welcome. And there you have my interview with Mary Lyle. That's an interview I did at the end of August. Something I'd like to note. ...about the interview going back to the circumstances, the facts of the case. and At the time that she and I did the interview, I was still doing a little research on it. But in so many words uh, between myself and her, and relating it to that 1995 movie Hackers... ...is that it is possible to hack ATM machines. In fact... If you do a search on Google or your favorite search engine, you will find that just recently at a hackers convention in Las Vegas, and yes, they have uh, a convention there uh, every year, and I used to be a Las Vegas resident, so I knew when that was going on back when I lived there. That uh, at this particular convention in 2016, they showed how a hacker could get into an ATM machine and cause money to come out of it. And just a little bit of research I've done since the interview until this show came out. Going back to 1998 to when Suzanne disappeared, it probably would have been easier, even easier to do it then. Given that the internet existed and somebody with computer knowledge would be able to make that particular ATM in that particular convenience store spit out a $20 bill. It is technically possible. It is not something... That is in fantasy land. And once again, I would urge you to go out and do that research for yourself. And this is the exact reason that uh, Mrs. Lyle believes that, that this machine that... Technically, nobody actually went in and used that machine at all, that from some remote location, that machine was hacked and that $20 bill was spit out. You can choose to believe that or not for yourself. You don't have to – I should state for the record, you don't uh, have to necessarily believe anything that I say on the show or then any of my interviewees say on this show. However, I believe that Mary Lyle makes a very strong case for what she believes happened to her daughter. That's what I happen to believe. And so I don't believe that the ATM story of it being hacked is totally outrageous. It may seem like Fantasyland, like a Hollywood script, but it is possible. There's also the point I'd like to make, and given that the title of this show was Suzanne Lyle, a young woman in transition – Is that for all of you women out there? Is that when you get into a situation where you are thinking about breaking up with a a guy, it's probably the most dangerous part of the relationship. Now, of course, most guys take it decently well, most men are not violent, but uh, you never know how particular people are going to react. And this is the other part of that transition that I was talking about. Not only was she in transition from the bus to her dorm, but I think that Mary Lau makes it clear, pretty clear, that her daughter was breaking up with her boyfriend. Now you can see that as a coincidence or something like that, but it may be that she was transitioning to the single life again. And as those of us who follow many disappearances and missing person cases, it is really strange how many ex-wives vanish when they go and meet their ex-husbands and husbands claim that – ex-husbands claim, well, she left and I don't know what to tell you. If you go through the Charlie Project and you start going through stories, it is amazing how many – relationships, once again, that are in transition, that a person ends up disappearing. And I would add to that that uh, here in Florida, along those lines, is that the, the murder, and it's a, it's a case that I think is solved, of Dan Markell. There is a situation where he was a divorced father, and it's fairly clear that his ex-wife's part of her family, not the entire family but at least one or two people in her family had him murdered and so you see enough of these stories about people going from relationships back to single again, people being married going back to being divorced and you see a lot of disappearances, murder and violence connected to all of it, there are a lot of emotions at play and Once again, that is the other part of Suzanne's life that was in transition that made her a possible victim. But once again, you can choose to believe that or not for yourself. Now, having said all that, you should know that uh, Suzanne is not, and this is to just throw out some other possibilities out there for all of you. That Suzanne is not the first woman, young woman, to disappear from the Albany campus. In nineteen eighty-five, a woman, her a young woman, her name was Karen Wilson, was walking back to campus. Now, granted, that's 13 years before Suzanne disappeared. And but she was walking ba- back to campus and she disappeared. And in fact, I would tell you that I I plan to put that case. ...on my list to hopefully cover somewhere down the road if I can find somebody, a family member, somebody who is uh, able to talk to me in depth uh, about what happened in those circumstances. Of course, you can go to thecharlieproject.org, other websites to find out some of the facts on that case. But uh, when I come to you with this show, I want to make sure that I have somebody to interview who is personally involved knows about the case, is an expert on the case, family member, like my first case with a writer and the disappearance of Ben Charles Padilla. So that should be known that this is not the first time that has happened on the Albany campus. We also have to keep in mind, uh, once again, to just throw this out, there's other possibilities, is that I think of the case of Morgan Harrington, who disappeared off of the campus of virginia tech in 2009 she had gone there to with friends to a metallica concert and somehow ended up outside of the venue before the concert even started and if you don't know in those types of situations uh, the security will not let people back in once you get in you're in if you go back out you can't get back in doesn't matter if you have a ticket stub nothing they just don't want to have people going in and out and in and out and in and out, and that has a lot to do with security. So she was caught outside of the venue, the auditorium, the concert hall before the concert, and told her friends through cell phone that she'd just meet them afterwards. Well, she disappeared, and then her remains were found a few months later. And then it was so it was a big mystery. It was a disappearance for a while. And then it was a murder case that was unsolved. And just within the last what would it be year, year and a half, uh, was discovered that a, a man living in the area had picked her up and killed her. And this guy, uh, they traced him through DNA that he had attacked another woman. A few years before that, and that woman had gotten away, but she had his DNA, and they were able to link that all up, and now that guy is in jail. So she just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, Morgan Harrington, walking on the campus of Virginia Tech. This guy came by. Whether he uh, attacked her or convinced her to get into the car with him, I'm not sure we'll ever know, although this guy, interestingly – had a a job history of being a a taxi driver, so he might have convinced Morgan that, hey, yeah, this is a taxi, I'll take you where you want to go, and she might have fallen for it, and of course things went bad. This could have happened in Suzanne's case as well. We have to be open to the possibility simply because there are no suspects, at least that the public knows. Um, I have my suspicions. My suspicions go along with what Mary Lyle says. But – and we there are some crazy facts, you have to admit, some crazy um, points uh, about uh, her boyfriend, his family. But there are a lot of unique families out there who have never committed any crimes. That's what we also have to remember. And it could be that Suzanne Lyle got off that bus – Somebody else came by, not her boyfriend, not a boyfriend's dad, or anybody like that. Maybe somebody that convinced her she could get into in the car for some reason. We have to be open to that because there are many instances of that. And once again, the probably the best known one on a college campus is Morgan, Morgan Harrington's. That that does happen. In fact, it happens way more than we really want to admit. So I wanted to put that on the record. Uh, For this case, you are going to draw your own conclusions, uh, and that's what this show is about. It's to raise awareness. It's to get people thinking. It's anybody who might have been on the campus at that time all these years later as a student, maybe who knew Suzanne, maybe heard a story that now all these years later. uh, Because what is pointed out when you listen to uh, a lot of true crime shows other than mine and mine of course is very new is that sometimes people see things and they don't know that they're important they just take them for being take them for granted and they don't find out years later that seeing that car parked out in front of that house is an actual clue to that just your average person it's just a car in front of a house well to a detective it could be a huge clue and that may be the point in this case that a car was seen, somebody remembers, oh, yeah, I remember there was a car that I remember on campus around when Suzanne disappeared. Even all these years later, somebody might remember something. And I think that being 46 and I haven't been in college in 23 years, that, you know, I still remember vehicles on campus. And I, I remember a lot about my college experience, although. Nobody disappeared off the, the campus of Grove City College when I was there from 1989 to 93, but I still do remember a lot about those years. So I'm hopeful that somebody might remember some of their experiences on the Albany campus of the University of New York. And, of course, regarding if you have any information, if anything pops into your mind, if you think anything that might be relevant to the case, you should – Call the New York State Police, and they have two numbers, 519-783-3211, or 899-940-4150. Or you can contact the State University of New York at Almaty Police Department, and their number is 518-442-3131. And, of course, I will provide all those links and numbers uh, for this show So you can see them while you are listening uh, to this podcast. I thank you for listening. Uh, My next episode, to foreshadow a little bit, is going to be another conversation with another mother who lost her son in 2001. It's actually a two-parter. We get into the, of course, disappearance of her son, but we also cover everything that she has done. Also, just like we did with... Mary Lyle here, but we cover what this woman has done since her son disappeared, everything that she's done, and how she has reached out to many families trying to help them, and so much that, like I said, we have a two-part episode, and then also after that, the episode after that will also be an interview with a mother who lost her daughter in Las Vegas in 2006, and I look forward to bringing all of that to you. We've reached the end of the show. I appreciate you listening. I hope you'll spread the word. I hope you can find me on Twitter, Unfound Podcast. I hope you can find me um, on Facebook, just my Edward Denzel account, if you want to find me there. Hopefully, I'll be starting a Facebook page soon. You can find the show at Podomatic and iTunes. I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe. And I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound